0: So, if you're with us last week, you remember that the reign of Saul <clears throat> came crashing to a halt at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul really had a number of instances where he was not trusting in God and was trusting in himself. And really, we kind of exposed it, hopefully, this Holy Spirit exposed it for us a little bit last week that really what was going on in Saul's mind was preserving his reign. We called it the Great Self-Preservation Project. He was doing everything he could to hold on to his reign, rather than realizing that God had given him something to steward, and that God was ultimately running the show. And so when, when push came to shove, it was, you know, in the stressful moments, it was more holding on to the kingdom than following God's direction. And Samuel has this moment where he says to Saul, That's it. God has rejected you. And Saul grabs on to the to the garment of Samuel as Samuel is walking away, and his garment tears. And Saul says, uh, and Samuel says to Saul, Just like this garment is torn, so God has torn this kingdom away from you. And then we find ourselves here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. If you don't, feel free to just listen along and, and hear the story this morning. 1 Samuel 16, what I want to um, say this morning is that we can really understand this whole chapter if we understand one particular verse. And I would argue that you can really understand the whole book of First and 2 Samuel, the really one book together, if we get this one verse right. And oftentimes we get it half right, and not completely right. So I want to suggest to you a a little bit of a different way of looking at it. We'll call this competing visions that are going on in our world. Man's vision and God's vision. So cool that we sang that song, Be Thou My Vision, earlier. That wasn't planned. uh, And that was fantastic. Competing visions that are happening. A couple of weeks ago, um, Jackson had been complaining about struggling to see the board. And since... Myself and Rachel and Tyler all wear glasses. Why wouldn't Jackson need glasses, too? And so we took him to the eye doctor, and Jack has a tendency to be anxious, a lot like me. He gets that straight from me. Uh, And so he got to the eye doctor, and he took the first test, and everything was kind. Then he got to the next test, and he made the mistake of asking what is going to happen at this test, right? Because we all know that ignorance is bliss. We can deal with something if it happens better than if we have to process it ahead of time. And it was that test where they shoot the air into your eye. You've had that, right? And it's a little bit uncomfortable and bizarre. And and so that that was it. Right? He just he couldn't do that in that moment. And he said, well, I'll just keep not being able to see. It's kind of his response to it, because I don't want to have to do this. And it broke my heart, because I know just what that is like. Um, so we left, and we, we made an appointment later, and we came back, and we rearranged how we did this so that, at the beginning of the eye doctor's appointment, he would have the regular exam, and at the end, he could just do, just do the glaucoma test or whatever it actually is for. And so he gets in there, and he's doing fantastic. And the doctor uh, puts the lens thing over his face, and he's looking through it, and all of a sudden, there's this moment where he can actually see the letters on the back wall, and his eyes, I, I mean, I couldn't see them because this huge thing was over him, but his eyes lit up, and he, he yells out, I can see it. I can see it, Daddy. And it's this moment of like, and I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, how long has he been struggling to see? And I've been just saying, oh, you're fine. No. But there was this moment, maybe you've seen the commercials where the lady hears for the first time and the tears are just streaming down her eyes. Right? There's this reality that when we see something, everything illuminates up. But there are competing visions in our world. There's the vision that we have with our eyes. And then there's God's vision of the world. And oftentimes they do not line up. And always they do not line up perfectly. And this is our reality in the midst of understanding this. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to just read verse 7. And I want to talk about it. And then we'll go back through and read this whole narrative together. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. You have heard this verse before probably a million times if you've, if you've been to church a lot. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You've heard this before. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I want to suggest to you an alternate translation that probably is a better reading, literally, of the Hebrew. And it would go like this For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. Now you might be saying, well, this sounds like semantics. It's the same thing. But it's actually not. Let me tell you why. Man sees according to the eyes. We perceive, right? Whatever we are seeing, we make perceptions of it, and that's what we base our reality on. This is what man does. This is our vision, our sight. But God sees with God's heart. This is not about God looking at the heart of man and finding a good man. This is about God seeing with his own heart. Do you see the difference that we're talking about here? And why this becomes so critically important and actually unbelievably liberating for the church is it is not dependent upon our performance. God sees with his heart. It means he sees with his eternal purposes. He sees the whole deal. We see very limited, just our perception, and oftentimes our perception is not right, and always it's not completely right. But God sees unlimited, because he sees from his purposes, and his purposes come to pass. Man sees with his eyes, but God sees with his heart. The vision of man is about perception. The vision of God is about God's purposes. If we get this right, this is going to unlock everything for us in this, in this particular chapter, because we've misread the David story. David's this great guy who has got a heart after God. And God blessed David, and and thank goodness God found David. That's not the right way to read it, I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that David was on God's heart, not that God was on David's heart. Does that make sense? And that this is the way that God goes after people. And it's unbelievably liberating for us, because you'll find out at the end, he's called you, too. You are on his heart. And it's not dependent upon how well you perform for him this coming week. But it's dependent upon his covenant eternal purposes that will come to pass. So let's read this story together, understanding uh, this context. Verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? When you read this first verse, the thought to you, if you've been tracking with us all through 1 Samuel, must be, mourn for Saul. I thought Samuel didn't like Saul. He was irritated by him to begin with. He never wanted to anoint a king. And then when he did, he anointed one that God said, well, here's what the people want, so do that. And every time Saul did something, there was Samuel to tell him, you screwed this one up, Saul. Now we find I would think you'd find Samuel rejoicing somewhere, like saying, I told you so. That's what I would do if I was Samuel, right? I'd be in the corner going, dude, Israel, I told you what you were going to get. No one wants to listen to me, right? But here we are. But there is Samuel, a very different guy, because he kind of gets the heart of God. He's in despair over the situation. And what I would suggest to you is it's not just the failure of Saul, but Samuel's looking at the kingdom as a whole. So there's a problem in the mind of Samuel. The problem is a broken kingdom. Samuel knows the past history Of the people of God. He knows that when the leaders fail, the people fall. He knows that when the leaders fail, they ultimately end up as slaves in Egypt. And so, probably going through Samuel's mind is less, oh, Saul, I feel terrible for you, but oh, God, are you rejecting your whole people when you reject this king? See, Samuel is seeing with the eyes of man, he's perceiving a circumstance and a situation. And he is saying, could this be the end? Is this the end of this kingdom? Is God going to do away with this? Is this going to be a Noah restart? Is this going to be an Abraham restart? Is this going to be a Moses restart? Is there going to be all kinds of struggle and strife in the midst of this? That's a really depressing thought. And here we find Samuel completely distraught, completely overwhelmed by the circumstances. And listen to what God says to him. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. (laughs) Love that, right? It's kind of like the old divine swift kick in the pants, right? Let's get up and get moving, dude. You've wallowed long enough. We've got stuff to do. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Suddenly we shift from the eyes of man to the heart of God. Because the heart of God, the purposes of God are not to reject people. The purposes of God are for God's glory to advance. Sometimes that happens by pushing people aside, unfortunately. But ultimately it's going to happen by gathering a people for himself who will be fully given to worship and service of God. So what God is saying here right in the moment is that the heart of God is not for rejection, it's for redemption. And where there seems like there's no way to go forward, God's going to actually make a new way, a crazy new way, as we're going to find out in this story. See, the heart of God is for the advance of his kingdom. Even when we look at our world and say, what on earth could God even do in the midst of this? Have you found yourself in those circumstances? Have you been looking with the eyes of man on the current circumstances of your life? Have you been tempted to say, what on earth could even come of this? And then there's the still small voice or the still large right foot that kicks you in the seat of your pants It says, get up and go. Even in spite of this, I'm going to do something. Because the eternal purposes of God are for the glory of God, in spite of the failings of man. You see this? Beautiful. So, if we've got a problem, we need a solution. right? And so Samuel is willing to go at this moment, but he's going to have the eyes of man again when he tries to find out who should be the next king. So let's keep reading the story verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about that, he'll kill me. We'll come back to that. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They said, do you come in peace? So here we begin to see, like this is a weird story. Everyone is terrified, right? This guy has just ejected the king. And now he's showing up to your town. And right the first thought is, well, I know we haven't been perfect here in Bethlehem, right? And it kind of fits because we're here in Bethlehem, different Bethlehem. And Samuel shows up and he's just kicked out the king for a couple of mess-ups. What is he going to do to us, right? And so the leaders go out and they're like, before you come any farther, is this good news or bad news? (laughs) And we've kind of been in those situations. And Samuel replied, yes, I'm coming in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before, here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, uh, but looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, a better reading is people look with their eyes, but God sees with his heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, nope, not him. Jesse had Shema pass by, and Samuel said, not him. And Jesse had seven of his sons come before, and God said, none of these. (laughs) So he asked Jesse, is this it? Is all the sons you've got? Because God said it's going to be one of your kids, and none of these have worked out. And we know the story as it goes on. There's still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out tending the sheep. So he's dirty, and he's doing the, the grunt work. But if you want to see him, fair enough. And Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So you see the urgency of what's happening here in this this moment. This is not going to be a quick trip to go get David. So he sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Glowing with health in a literal translation is the word ruddy. That might be in your Bibles, right? Glowing with health sounds better than ruddy. I don't know about you. I'd rather someone say that I'm glowing with health than that I'm ruddy. The Lord said to Samuel, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Samuel, even though he has seen Saul fail, still has the vision of man that a king has to look a certain way. He's got to fit the description. He's got to be tall. He's got to be rugged. He's got to be someone, probably this is what Samuel is thinking, this is what I'd be thinking, he's got to be someone that people will look at and accept. And, then, and they're not going to go for the shepherd out here who is either glowing with health or ruddy or however we want to go with that. But the heart of God sees something very different. The heart of God sees his eternal purpose because the heart of God is not for a warrior king who will hold tightly onto a throne But the heart of God is for a king who would lead a people to worship God as the rightful king. You see this? Because what does God want? Does God want the permanence of Israel? Or does he want the permanence of a people who will worship him? Right? And so the heart of God is moving in this way. God chooses David of all people. David. In one Samuel chapter thirteen, we get that famous phrase that God is looking for a king who is a man after His own heart. Right? and we tag that onto David and say, "Oh, he's the greatest. He's a man after God's own heart." There's all kinds of problems with that when we read the story of David because he's like a horrifically bad sinner, right? Probably worse than we will ever be. I mean, sin is bad equally, but like the stuff he does is stuff that will get you, in, you know, incarcerated for the rest of your life, right? So we're talking about horrifically bad sin, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. Something doesn't jive. And so we're always trying to sort of play with that. Well, it's his heart, but then he kind of didn't do the right things. I want to give you a whole different reading based on what we've just said before, and I think this will just open this all the way up. The right way to translate that is that God is looking for a man according to his heart. In other words, God is going to choose a man that is in God's heart. Does this make sense? So he is not looking for a king who has God in his heart already. This is not about finding a man who has God in his heart. This is about understanding that God has a man in his heart. Do we understand? This is about choosing. This is about God's sovereign purposes in moving his kingdom forward just for the sake of giving some more facts to back it up. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God gives the Davidic covenant and says your throne is going to last forever. Right? Your, your kids are going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. And ultimately, Jesus comes in the line of David to fulfill that reality. This is what David says to God in 2 Samuel chapter 17. According to your heart, God, this has all come to pass. And it's the same phrase as in 1 Samuel 13. So this is all about the heart of God choosing a man and not about God searching and searching and finally finding a man who's worthy. Listen, all David's good qualities come as a consequence of God's choice of him. They are not qualifications that led God to choose him. you see this? Because David is just like us. He has good intentions to follow God, but he's horribly flawed. He loves God. He wants to serve God, but he's got a flesh and a sinful reality in him too that is raging just like it is in us. And so at the end of the day, God can say to David, your throne's going to last forever. Why? Because it wasn't based on his performance. He didn't choose him just because God was in his heart. He chose him because he was in God's heart. And the same is true for you. Imagine if God calling you to faith was based on the fact that He thought you were good enough for the job. Imagine that. That is antithetical to the Gospel. The Gospel says, God should have nothing to do with you. He should wash His hands of you. But He's so rich in grace, you are so embedded on His heart that he is calling you to himself constantly. That was a part for you to play in that too. And we see the gospel all the way back in the story of David. The same thing is happening. David was on God's heart, even if God wasn't always on David's heart. I know it seems nuanced, and I know it seems semantical, but honestly, it is radically important to understand this in a gospel-centered way. But friends, there is risk, right? There is a faithful moment for Samuel here. Is he going to go through with all of this, right? First we saw, we read earlier, where he basically says to God, that's great that you want to anoint a new king, but by the way, Saul's already still king, even though I told him he couldn't be anymore, and he's going to kill me if I do this. Because we've already seen, what does Saul want to do? Hold on to his kingdom, So if I'm going to go around dumping oil on someone else, I'm probably a dead man. And so there's this moment of crisis of faith for Samuel. Is he going to be obedient to what God has asked him to do? Or is he going to only see with the eyes of man? And here's the truth for all of us, because we struggle with this in the moment, figuring this out. How do we ever get to see with the heart of God and not just the eyes of man? There's only one way. You have to hear from God himself. It is the only way that you will see with the heart of God. Now listen, some of you will be praying and you will have an impression from God. For most of us, we'll hear from God from his word. right? From the scriptures that are fully given to us. Or from the exhortation that we receive from other believers. There's so many ways that God can speak to us. The only way that we will get at the heart of God is if we hear from God. And, let me dig this a little bit deeper, the only way that you will hear from God is if you make it a priority to hear from God. Listen, Samuel isn't just hearing from God now because all of a sudden God slapped him upside the head and said, I got something to tell you, boy. He spent his whole life cultivating a life to hear from God. And so even in this critical moment, he was ready and willing and able to hear from God and to act in radical faith. Because even if his life wasn't taken, ultimately when God says David's the one, he has another crisis moment of faith. Am I really going to show this, this ruddy shepherd boy to all of Israel and say, here's your new king? He's a moment. Right? His reputation is on the line. What's going to happen here? And If we are not connected to the voice of God We will always see with the eyes of man. When David uh, is anointed as king, we would think the next part of the story, and I won't read this, but you can read this on your own later in the week. We would think that the next part of the story would be a great coronation, right? But the truth is we are going to wait tens of chapters until David is coronated. 2 Samuel 7. We will never get to it in this series that we're in. You would think that when David is anointed, then he marches in and takes over the kingship. That's not what happens. What interestingly happens is the Spirit of God rushes on David. That's how we're told. I love that all through 1 Samuel, the way the Spirit comes on people. It says it rushes on them. There's no confusing that they are now empowered by the Spirit. What we have in the life of David, as the Spirit rushes on him, is that a spirit of of terror... Spirit of struggle, spirit of evil, comes on Saul at the same moment. And we might be trying to figure out, well, is this God disowning Saul and punishing him? I don't think so. I think this is God preparing David. Because what happens? One of Saul's trusted advisors says, hey, let's find a great musician. Because if we can bring a great musician here, when you're really struggling with this, music will help to soothe your soul for a moment. And so when they go search for a great musician, who do they find? David. And so David, who is the king, comes to the now-seated king and is playing music for him to calm him in the midst of strife. Because the eyes of man would say, establish your kingdom, new king. But the heart of God would say, establish yourself as a servant for my glory. you see it? We are all hard after our own kingdoms. That is the eyes of man. What would it mean to lay down your life to serve? That is the heart of God. And so in the story of David, we see this unbelievable unveiling of the juxtaposition of the eyes of man and the heart of God. Fast forward to the day we celebrate today, Palm Sunday. Look at the story of Jesus for just a moment and marvel at the unbelievable similarities to the story we have just read. There is a problem in Israel when Jesus shows up, is there not? There is a broken kingdom, just like the broken kingdom in the times of David, except now they are occupied by foreign forces. The Romans are running the show, and the people of God don't like it, and they are desperate to get back to being their own nation, to be following God in that way. Well, how much they want to follow God, we're not quite sure, but they want to be their own nation. And so what is their solution to this? Their solution is looking for what they're calling a Messiah, right? a chosen one. Catch those words. Right? Because we just said that about David being a chosen one. They're looking for a Messiah who is a chosen one who will come and do what? Get rid of the Romans to establish his kingdom. What is this? This is the eyes of man. Is it not? We've got a problem. We've got an enemy. We need to crush our enemy and we need to establish our kingdom. Done. Listen, in our lives, you probably are not occupied currently by a Roman army. If you are, I'd like to check out your house and see what's happening there. It'd be pretty cool, artifactually. But there are enemies in your life, and you are thinking right now, if God could just get rid of these, man, my life would be easier, right? If God could just deal with my debt and straighten out my finances. If God could just handle my relational struggles and my family... Or what about the situation at work? If God could just deal with that and be done with it, then I could really move forward in my life. This is the eyes of man. Right? I've got an enemy. Just get rid of him. God, crush my enemies. Let me establish my kingdom. What is the heart of God? Jesus shows up and he says, this is not just a broken kingdom. It's a broken world. And you don't need to just have your enemies crushed. You need to have the enemy crushed. Because your problem is way bigger than you ever imagined it was. Your problem isn't just strife at work. Your problem isn't just broken relationships and family or friendships. Your problem isn't just debt or financial struggles. Your problem isn't just illness or sickness. Your problem is SIN, capital S. I'm not talking about the ways you mess up here and there. That's SIN, capital, or SIN, lowercase S. That is a uh, demonstrator of the real problem, right? The real problem is sin, capital S, that plagues you, that lives in you. It's what the Bible calls your flesh. It is warring against the rule of Jesus in your own life. That's the problem. And that part of you bows to the enemy, Satan himself, and is working in, in world. The Bible talks about Satan, the world, and the flesh as the three sort of movements of evil in our world. This is the problem as Jesus understands it. And so when he comes to the world, he is not there just to deal with a momentary issue. Now listen, if I had said that to the Jewish people in the first century, if I had just called the Romans a momentary issue, they'd have freaked out, right? Just like if I would say to you, your current illness is a momentary issue, you're probably saying to me, you don't get it. I'm not trying to be tough. What I'm saying is God is doing way bigger things than just dealing with your momentary struggle. I am so grateful for a God who is after his glory in the end. Why? Because that assures my inheritance in the end. If I just had a God who dealt with my struggle now, when that struggle was dealt with, I'd be left to figure out the rest of my life on my own. Imagine that. But Jesus comes in a whole different way. We see the heart of God through the move of Jesus in the scriptures. And so when Jesus comes, he comes not to set up a new kingdom as everyone expected him to, but he comes to liberate a whole world from the rule of sin what no one was looking for, and yet what everyone needed. See, the kingdom in the eyes of the people is all about Palm Sunday. What happens on Palm Sunday? Jesus shows up and everyone is thrilled because here comes the guy that's going to kick out the Romans, right? They're worshiping him like Messiah, just like they they had done with the Maccabean... um, Maccabean reign earlier. They're laying down palms. This is exactly how it happened with the Maccabean uh, revolution that that liberated Israel for a short time. They're laying down their cloaks. Jesus is coming in on a donkey just exactly like it had happened before. Why? Because this guy's going to be just like the Maccabees. He's going to free us from from the oppressors. Jesus is going to free them from the oppressor, but they haven't understood because they've only seen with the eyes of man because the kingdom for Jesus is not Palm Sunday, it's Good Friday. And ultimately, Easter. That he would actually die so that it could be for everyone and not just for him. And that in the resurrection, his sacrifice is accepted by God and he is declared victorious over death and therefore anyone who is in Christ, if you have trusted him, likewise has all that Jesus has. Because the heart of God is far greater than the eyes of man. And what does this kingdom look like? Well, in the eyes of man, the kingdom would look like, come, Palm Sunday, establish your kingdom. The kingdom in the eyes of God looks like Philippians chapter 2, where Paul recounts the truth of Jesus. Do you remember this? Jesus was obedient. Came as a slave. Took on the, for, the human form. Was obedient even to death. And even death on a cross. It was all about gospel serving. And then what happens at the end of that passage? So that in a coming time, every knee will bow and every heart confess that who? Jesus Christ The anointed one, the chosen one, as in Luke chapter 9, is Lord of all. See, this is how the kingdom comes. And thank God that this is how the kingdom comes, because it's the only way that we are included in it. Do you see this, church? And so, there's a moment of faith for you right now, or in your life, a moment of risk. Just like Samuel, when he's presented with this new king, do we say, this is I don't get all of this. Right? The, the eyes of man say, this doesn't make sense. This guy was 2,000 years ago, and he died. And there's stories of him raising, and maybe that happened, or maybe it didn't, but I don't get, what does that even mean for me now? Like, I'm trying to live my life now, and thanks that Jesus died for me, and one day I can go to heaven, and that's fine, whatever, but what about now? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1.18? For those who don't believe, the cross is foolishness. But for those who do believe, the cross is power. See, the heart of God says the cross is power. And when Paul says that, he does not just mean power over death in the final day, when you can enter into the presence of Jesus once and for all, and we thank God for that. But he also means power now for the struggles of now. Without the resurrection, we've got no hope for anything. Certainly not for a future life with God, but we have no hope now. But with the resurrection, with the kingdom heart of God, everything becomes possible in part now. The heart of God is far greater than the eyes of man. Church, just before we close up, there's a third story that I want to tell you. And that story is your story. We've heard about David and we've heard about Jesus, but what about you? It's a problem in our world. Our world is still unbelievably broken, and our lives are still radically broken. And if you're like me, you look with the eyes of man at our world and you say, God, help us. There's nothing we can do. We're broken. And our world is so broken. But the heart of God speaks just a different phrase. He says the kingdom of Jesus is already, even if it is not yet. That Jesus, very real, in a very real way, instituted his kingdom in part. And the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, is the down payment of that kingdom. And the Spirit's work in your life is the beginning taste of the kingdom of God that is fully to come when Jesus comes back. But if the kingdom is already, and not yet, and not just not yet, then there's something for us. See, we look at our world and we say the only solution to our world through the eyes of man is, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we don't know what to do. And guess what? That's a good answer. But the heart of God speaks it just a little bit different. The heart of God says, I am coming to set everything right in the world, but you are there now. And so you be an agent of the kingdom in your midst now. You live out the truth of the gospel in your spheres of influence now. See, the heart of God is not just for a returning Christ, and we praise God for that, but it's also for an empowered church that lives in a cruciform reality. Right? That means that we live in the image and model of the cross. Living out the gospel to the world around us. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, the same message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the kingdom for us often looks like building our own kingdom. Yet the kingdom flavor of the kingdom of God is about laying our lives down to make his kingdom known. Being agents of reconciliation and gospel in the midst of a broken world. Being faithful to live it out in the midst of a broken world. It's not about come and see. That's the eyes of man. Well, if people are interested in Jesus, they can come and, come and go to a church and find out. That's the eyes of man. The heart of God says go and show. So you are commissioned as an ambassador of this unbelievable gospel. It has not just changed you, but it has changed you in such a profound way that God has entrusted you with the grand responsibility of living it in the midst of a broken world. You will do it brokenly and imperfectly. Of course you will. David did it that way too. This is not, you are not chosen because God said you are qualified. You are chosen because what God will do in you through his call on you will be profound. And just like David was on God's heart, as a chosen man, So Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, was called the Chosen One. And so all through the New Testament, what are the people of God called? Chosen people. So the commission of a Palm Sunday is not just about receiving Jesus, but about declaring Jesus to the ends of the earth, here and all across this world, for the sake of the Gospel. You are agents of reconciliation. You are ambassadors of the gospel. The word ambassador implies that you know the brokenness of the world and you know the wholeness of the gospel and you are willing to speak the wholeness of the gospel in the midst of the brokenness of the world. You see this. So you are commissioned. You are entrusted. You are chosen. And it doesn't depend upon your performance. But if you submit yourself to the move of the kingdom, God will do unbelievable things through you.